In this episode of 2036, the podcast, join host Munir Megjani for a conversation about the future of work with Interim Dean of Emory College, Carla Freeman, and Beinecke Scholar, Hunter Akridge. I think for me, the most interesting questions often emerge in the periphery of what I thought was going to be the main story. I went to the Caribbean to do this work on the outsourcing of the informatics sector, and I was focused on West Indian women doing this kind of work. And one of the themes that kept coming up was the degree to which they were so focused on their dress that they dressed up to the nines when they went to work because they wanted to be seen as office workers, even though the nature of the work they were doing was very low-waged and very monotonous. And it led me to explore a whole hidden economy whereby they traveled to other countries to buy cheaper clothes, and they had whole networks of informal trade where they bought and sold clothes or made clothes. So by exploring what was a marginal observation, oh, these women are dressed so well, I ended up unearthing a really critical part of the economic picture of these women's lives and the motivation for why they would rather work in this sector where they earned less money than they could have earned cutting sugarcane. Hello and welcome to 2036, the podcast. My name is Munir McJohnny and I will be your host for today. Today with us, we have two phenomenal individuals whose bios are both intimidating and just absolutely impressive to me. First is Carla Freeman, who is the Dean of Emory College of Arts and Science and the Goodrich C. White Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, a feminist anthropologist with over 30 years of fieldwork experience in the Caribbean. Her research examines the culture, gender, and political economy of labor and globalization and the changing nature of work life in the 20th and 21st century. Also with us, we have Hunter Akridge. He is a Questbridge Scholarship recipient in his senior year at Emory. He has been selected as a Beinecke Scholar, one of only 16 nationwide, and will pursue graduate work in the study of employee autonomy when he completes his undergraduate degree in anthropology and economics. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to have both of you here. And there were so many questions that I had just from reading both of your bios. Uh, first and foremost, as someone who's you know, in this nature of work life and trying to find this balance, what is the biggest change you would say in nature in the work life in the 20th and 21st century? Wow, that's a big question. I, I would respond to that by saying that this notion of work slash life balance that we hear so much around us in the public domain and certainly in the academic arena is um, illusory. And I mm. think in certainly in the 21st century and certainly in relation to the COVID pandemic and all that we've experienced, the notion that there is a separation between work and life is something that I'm struck by both in my own life, in the lives of our faculty and our students, and it's the focus of much of my current academic Research. Are you saying corporate America has just been lying to me my entire life about this? <laughs> well, there is a way in which there's a convenient narrative that seems comforting to people mm. at the idea of balance 
Doesn't that sound of appealing? Course. Yeah, it sounds appealing. Um, but I think anyone who, especially during COVID, I think it's really put a spotlight on this illusory notion of balance because so many of us were working from home mm. and we were trying to manage you know, families or just our own cooking and cleaning and all of the elements that go into everyday life along with strenuous jobs. And we were confronted head on with the impossibility of separating out these, these roles. So two questions to that. Is there even the pursuit of work-life balance or is that just such an illusion that we should just accept the way that things are? And second, it felt like for the first time that those who had the privilege of certain jobs during COVID found something that at least mirrored what we've been told of this illusion of work-life balance. They were working it a little less or working while they were also doing stuff with a family, being at home. And now you're seeing this thing called quiet quitting where people who are being forced to go back to the way that they were having to do things are leaving their jobs for jobs that have this quote unquote supposed or this illusion of work-life balance. Do you think that's the way of the future? There's a lot in that question. Um, one thing I would say is I, I do think that the concept of work-life balance has invited people to pay attention more than we may have done earlier in the 20th century to preserving the integrity of our relationship with our families, our relationship with our own health, our pleasure, our leisure in, in ways that don't allow us hopefully to be completely consumed and swallowed up by our jobs. There's a, there's a role that technology plays in this, and I know Hunter will have a lot to say yeah. about the role of technology, but when we carry our, our iPhones with us everywhere, it means that we are always available to our jobs, and there's a kind of slippage that necessarily happens. There are good elements of that, that we can be available and we can respond to situations and needs urgently. We have a kid who needs to be p picked up from school, or we have a boss that needs us for one reason or another. But there's also a way in which that, that means that we are always working and Hunter, you've also studied and planned to study employee autonomy, right? How does that play into all of this? Yeah. And building off of Dean Freeman's answer, I think that there's a lot of ways in which folks across generations are doing boundary work more explicitly, mapping out and thinking about themselves, thinking for themselves where they want to delimit um, how work permeates into all aspects of our lives. And I think that's something that my generation and younger generations are talking about on TikTok, are as a part of popular culture and as part of this phenomenon of quiet quitting that you're referencing. Um, and I think that does have to do with employee autonomy. We've seen in recent years, especially since the pandemic, more folks, um, even in white collar, you know, relatively privileged situations, who are interested in organizing and getting together with their colleagues and um, advocating for more autonomy and more say over how they structure their time at work. And of course, this isn't only a white collar phenomenon, it's happening across the board, um, not just in the US, um, but in many global contexts as well. Dr. Shribi, one of my favorite professors when I was at Emory, called you a unique intellectual. Uh, he says that the ability to listen and be very critical, even willing to rethink his own ideas, make him a unique intellectual. In our world today where we are so polarized and individuals are just so stuck in their ways of not wanting to listen, not really opening up, 
to ideas even when presented with vast evidence. How do you encourage someone to do this and be a unique intellectual like yourself? Hmm. I think this is something um, that I've leaned more into throughout my college experience. When I'm describing anthropology to someone who has no clue what anthropology is, I often say it's a method of listening. It's um, an analytical way to engage in empathy. It's a way of being in the world, taking others seriously, treating them as epistemic equals, and meeting them where they're at. This is something that I've leaned into through reading anthropological work with Dean Freeman, through my own research, through directed readings that I've done with Professor Tribi and close conversations with other professors, uh, which is another privilege um, that I've had as an Emory student. I think that this is that spirit of meeting others where they're at, of listening, of slow and patient engagement with folks who maybe inhabit entirely different social worlds, who see the world entirely different than you do, is the critical work that's needed in a increasingly polarized environment. So how do you, and this is a question for both of you as someone who's experienced in doing this, someone who's starting to do this, how do you make sure that you're not biasing the data that you're taking in, right? As human beings are flawed and information is coming in and then going out, how do you kind of work on making sure that you're presenting the data as authentically as possible? I think all scientific inquiry is shaped. The questions we asked are motivated. Yeah. You know, whether you're a physicist or you're a cultural anthropologist. So we're asking questions that matter to us in one way or another. So I I think, again, it's there's a sort of um, um, misunderstanding that that somehow asking deep questions about culture and human behavior are necessarily more slanted or biased uh, than than other kinds of questions. But I think, you know, when one does participant observation and as an ethnographer and you're immersed in another environment, whether it's in your home city or in another country and in another language, at all times, you're a human being. You're asking questions, you're interacting with people, and it's precisely that depth of relationship that one builds in the field that I think unearths modes of knowledge that are impervious to us through simply survey devices, for example. Now, are those biased or are they framed from our own experiences? Absolutely. Does it mean that they're somehow not empirical or there isn't truth and and wisdom derived through those encounters, through those interviews, through those interactions, through those observations? I, I think we get our richest understanding of how, what motivates people, what matters to people when we are immersed in their worlds. We use a technique called triangulation, which suggests that, for example, if, if I wanted to understand something of your background and what motivates you, I might ask you a set of questions, and then you might go home and interact. You might even speak differently to your family. You probably would speak differently to your family than you did to me. Uh, as someone that you only know, uh, you know, peripherally. And what I would next do was, would be to try to get myself invited home to your family and talk to, <laughs> to members of your family and hear from their perspective, oh, you know, I heard this story. How did you experience that? And we, we, we triangulate those stories and those narratives and those explanations so that we see both the convergences and we see contradictions. And we try to under, unearth where those contradictions reside 
and what motivated them? Why, why, did it, why did I hear a story presented in one way by one individual that's contravened by the other? So even in the contradiction, there's so much information. Absolutely. In fact, that's where the richest information Rich. lies, I wow. think. Wow. I have a note in my phone called in pursuit of a better question. And this is a bit of an odd question, but how do you ask a better question? How do you focus and think about the questions you're going to ask? Because knowledge is readily available. It's how you're asking the question to obtain that, right? And so whether you're doing that for a Google search or asking a friend or doing it in a scientific way, how do you go about that? I think for myself, I'm really interested in generative why questions. Mm. These are often the kinds of questions that guide a research project or a new mode of inquiry. For example, um, I'm really interested in questions around what is work and why do our current conceptions of what counts as work, why, why are they the way they are? What is their history? What is their cultural meanings? Um, what kind of work is hidden and invisible, and why, and who does that matter to, and who is doing that work? Those are a lot of the questions that I ask in my research, the kinds of questions that are inspired by feminist ways of looking at the world and looking at social phenomenon. Um, I think it um, necessitates being critical, not taking the way things are as the way things are, it also takes some imagination about how things could be otherwise. Very interesting. Yeah. Anything to add? Yeah, I guess what I would say, too, just to embellish that somewhat, is that I think for me the most interesting questions often emerge in the periphery of what I thought was going to be the main story. Mm. And so it's the, the questions are the things that haunt the main narrative, themes that keep emerging in ways that people are not intent to really focus on, but they keep resurfacing in my imagination. And this happened to me in every major uh, fieldwork experience I've had. I went, I went to the Caribbean to do this work on the outsourcing of the informatics sector, and I was focused on West Indian women doing this kind of work and how hard they were working between work and, and their formal jobs. And one of the themes that kept coming up was the degree to which they were so focused on their dress that they dressed up to the nines when they went to work and they wore, instead of, <laughs> instead of wearing um, tennis shoes on the street to get to work as one finds in major cities in America, they wore their high heels on the street because they wanted to be seen as office workers, even though the nature of the work they were doing was very low-waged and very monotonous, routine um, informatics, you know, computer-based informatics work. And I noticed that, everyone noticed that. Everyone who would remark about this industry would talk about how well-dressed these women were. And, I, and so it was something that haunted me, and I started exploring in the margins, well, how are they dressed so fancily, and why are they dressed so fancily? And it, and it led me to explore a whole hidden economy whereby they traveled to other countries to buy cheaper clothes because clothes were so expensive in Barbados, and they had whole networks of informal trade where they sold, bought and sold clothes or made clothes. So again, it, it, 
by exploring what was a marginal observation, oh, these women are dressed so well, I ended up unearthing a really critical part of the economic picture of these women's lives and the motivation for why they would rather work in this sector where they earned less money than they could have earned cutting sugarcane. And the reason was that they enjoyed being in an air-conditioned office where they appeared to be pink-collar, as I called them, pink-collar workers, um, and it gave them a sense of pride. So I, I guess that's that's one way of, of getting at the questions we, we find most interesting are often not the ones that get you explicitly from point A to point B, but they haunt the motivations and the 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 the, um, the richness and the complexities of what getting from point A to point B mean in people's lives. Is that what inspired your book title, High Tech and High Heels? Yeah, that's Very where I came from. Very yeah. interesting. So obviously your research is never done. Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask folks who are really observing the world like you are, what is one of the most interesting or surprising things that you have found out during your research? Uh, in, in, in my last book, Entrepreneurial Selves, it was a book that began to be a study of the growth, the emergence and growth of entrepreneurial activity in the developing world. Uh, how it is that in societies where the usual path to upward mobility had been pursued through education, joining the civil service, getting a good corporate job, and rising through the ranks either of government or the private sector. Those, that was the usual path of upward mobility. And suddenly there was a growth in, in entrepreneurial activity in many developing countries. And I thought it would be interesting to explore that. And in particular, I was curious about you know, how, what, what space is there for women in, the, in this arena and ethnic minorities, et cetera. What ended up happening was, I, I did ask all of those questions. I, I did hundreds of interviews, and I have a wealth of, of you know, reams of material that describe the challenges and paths of people to become entrepreneurs. But what really ended up being interesting to me, again, were, were the things that haunted those interviews and, and haunted those observations, which were about the measures by which people undertook entrepreneurial behavior in the fashioning of their lives themselves. Not just their business, but what it is to be a person, a woman, a man, um, a, a married person, or a dating person, or a parent. And how suddenly was the pursuit of being a good parent not just putting a roof over your kid's head and paying for school uniforms and school fees, which is the, the normative West Indian preoccupation for providing well for a child, but now instead to ensure important and meaningful and enriching leisure activities and all kinds of things that are very familiar to us in the U.S., but in this part of the world were never part of, of a, an ordinary child's upbringing going forward or swimming lessons or uh, any kind of wellness activities, doing yoga and things like that. And suddenly I saw a rise of all of those activities that I came to see not just as evidence of new entrepreneurial businesses, but ways in which people were understanding the imperative to make themselves a project always in progress. One of the projects I worked on this summer was with a team of designers and technologists at Carnegie Mellon in partnership with a hospitality union. We were looking at the apps that manage and schedule hotel housekeepers. I came into the project having read some articles, 
having listened to some union material and had assumed that the sort of negative effects that were happening to you know these these hotel housekeepers, largely women of color, often immigrants, was because of these technologies themselves, that it was something about how they were designed, developed without their voices that made them not work for them, Mm. that made them um, inflexible, that reduced their autonomy, that ended up increasing workplace strain by putting them on, on assignments all over hotels or all over properties. And And the conversations that I had with housekeepers, that the research team had with housekeepers, it was really interesting to deconstruct that narrative, um, that it actually wasn't that simple, that there were so many complex, messy, very human things that were happening on the ground in individual properties, that it had to do with relationships between housekeepers, their managers, and um, other staff at the hotel that had to do with power relationships between the management of the hotel and the housekeepers on the ground. It had to do with how the technology was being used and how it was embedded in social relationships much more significantly than anything about how the technology was designed. So it definitely wasn't designed with the end user in mind. It wasn't, no. But also, that mattered much less than um, the sort of the messy implementation um, and organizational context. I think as someone with an anthropological background, I was really trained to look towards more explicitly than maybe some of the other folks Mm. who were on the research team. Well, I want to thank both of you so much, not only for being here with us today, answering all of my ridiculous questions, but for the work that you are doing out in the world, really shining a spotlight on so much and unearthing so much that needs to really be heard and seen by the masses. So I hope you will walk away with this, knowing that it's not just the questions that you go in with, but the questions that you come out with. Thank you both once again. Thank you. Thank you. On the next episode of 2036, the podcast. Intersectional feminist thinking can be operationalized in a way to direct more ethical and equitable data science. You know, we hear all these problems like, you know, the biased data sets. We hear about disparate outcomes. The idea that systems are optimized for certain groups and not others. This is not news to humanities scholars, and it's especially not news to feminist theorists um, and feminist sociologists who have thought about how power over determines every single thing that we do, all of our interactions, all the privileges that we experience on the one hand, all of the oppression that we might experience on the other. This has to do with these larger forces of structural power, right? Feminist thinking has a lot to say about what the possible solutions might be, like the de-biasing, right? It's like, oh no, we produced a bias model. Okay, let's de-bias it. Or, oh no, our training data is biased. Let's de-bias it. An intersectional feminist approach would say that is That will never work, right? Because trying to fix things after the fact does not get at the root cause, the reason why we end up with bias data in the first place. Join Laney Graduate School Dean Kimberly Jacob Ariola and Professor Lauren Klein as they explore the concept of data justice. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about 2036, Emory's campaign to transform the future, visit 2036.emory.com. Dot edu.